This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Today, we are diving into a fascinating topic that sheds light on a dark chapter of history. After World War II, some Nazis faced persecution in the Nuremberg trials, while others managed to escape justice by fleeing to different parts of the world. <clears throat> we all know that many Nazis found refuge in South America, but what about those who stayed in Europe or fled to Arab countries? This is where the Israeli Mossad, the renowned intelligence agency, enters the picture. Our guest today is Professor Dani Olbach, an accomplished Israeli military historian and an associate professor at the Hebrew University. With a background in intelligence and military history, Professor Olbach brings a wealth of expertise to our discussion. He holds a PhD in history from Harvard University as well. In his latest book, Fugitives, Professor Orbach explores the stories of Nazi war criminals who found new roles and allegiances after the war. He uncovers the intriguing involvement of the Mossad with former Nazis, revealing previously undisclosed information about their recruitment and interactions. Professor Olbach's research, backed by classified internal documents, sheds light on the complex relationships between former Nazis and intelligence agencies worldwide. Join us as we delve into the captivating world of post-World War II Nazi fugitives and the hidden connections between them and intelligence agencies around the globe. Let's welcome Professor Danny Olbach and explore the astonishing revolutions in his latest book, Fugitives, thank you so much for hey, joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Is how did GPT do? So, uh, well, you know, it we did well, more or less. <laughs> At least no mistakes. Yeah. Um, you know, once I tried to um, kind of ask GPT Chat to write about my own background. And I discovered that I'm an accomplished Talmudic scholar. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Maybe he, it has access to an alternate universe. Yeah, well, maybe <laughs> my duplicate. So, the so book, whenever I have to, I have yeah. to say, whenever I use it to draft uh, emails or whatever, what happens is because it recognizes that I have a Jewish name, and it, it makes up other names for people in the email or in the meeting based on their first name. Sometimes I only give it a first name, and it just makes up other Jewish names like <laughs> Sivan Gorbenblacher, or <laughs> it just makes up random names that sound Jewish. <laughs> So, <laughs> so actually, you know, instead of just, you know, introducing the book in the usual way, mm -hmm. let me begin with a funny story. Okay. In, during my research, I followed CAA reports. Actually, many of them are online. And, you know, the CAA has a formidable reputation. And you assume that they know languages, you know. You know, Americans usually don't know many languages, but we assume that the CAA people do a big mistake. So they monitored a Nazi criminal who was hiding in Syria, Eichmann's assistant, Alois Brunner. We'll speak about him later, most probably. And he wrote to one of his friends, we will begin a resume a dealing with the cement business, probably a code word for arms trafficking, after my friend returns from Doha, from Qatar. Mm -hmm. 
So in German, from Doha is von Doha. And mm-hmm. I see the CIA analyst writes a footnote at the bottom of the document. We still did not discover a Nazi named von Doha. <laughs> He's unknown to us, but we are still looking for this person. <laughs> so wow. when you study espionage and intelligence, you often see, you see impressive things. But sometimes you see how incompetent formidable spy agencies are. Yeah. Uh-huh. Something that GPT probably could have caught. Yeah. But the book is in Hebrew. No, right. no, the book is in English. The in book, English. The okay. book was published originally in English as okay. a Fugitives, a History of Nazi Mercenaries During the Cold War by Pegasus in the US and Hearst in the UK. And then published in Hebrew and French, going to be published in Spanish, Portuguese, Hungarian, and Japanese. Wow. And uh, just while we're at it, we can plug it so it's on Amazon basically anywhere. Exactly. Okay. Okay, or so Kindle as well. Fugitives by Professor Daniel Bach. So how does this book, the story of writing the book, how does it begin? You know, I looked for a new subject. After publishing my last book on a rebellion to the Japanese army, it was also my dissertation, I looked for a new subject. I always like to do something new. So I'm not one of these historians who are ruminating on the same subject again and again and again, different versions. And I wanted something really interesting, something juicy. And then I zeroed on Nazi hunters. Let's tell the story or the history of Nazi hunters. And I started to read the books that were published before me. And I discovered to my dismay that most Nazi hunters were relatively boring people. And usually not as accomplished as their image was, often very untrustworthy. But then I kind of came to the conclusion that the hunted Nazis were actually much more interesting than the hunters. Hmm. And I said, okay, South America, the Nazis who escaped South America, that was discussed by so many, but what about the Nazis who, who went to the Middle East? For example, uh, who I mentioned him, Alois Brunner, a, a Holocaust perpetrator, major Holocaust perpetrator, Eichmann's right-hand man who was hiding in Damascus. What did he do? And then I started to look on previous books and none of them almost quoted sources. Everybody guessed and usually they quoted one another. So I wanted to tell the real stories of his people, of the Nazis, and of course the research widened, who became mercenaries, especially intelligence experts, who found no employers uh, or jobs related to the field of expertise in Germany after the war. And we looked for employment elsewhere. And very quickly I discovered that many groups of Nazi mercenaries in the fields of intelligence, also military advisors, scientific advisors, arms traffickers, found employment with virtually everybody. West Germany, East Germany, the Soviet Union, the United States, Great Britain, France, and now more interesting, the Algerian rebels who fought France, other post-colonial rebels, Arab countries. Egypt is famous. Of course, and Syria, and in some cases, also Israel. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, man, that's a story one needs to tell. Now, there is one very famous story, which it was published, I think, before about, I don't know if it's this Nazi, the one with the scar, 
who Otto Skorzeny. Yeah, yeah, this is the chapter. famous one, yeah. right? He, well, famous, yeah, relatively. He, he was famous for a reason because he was very good in PR. Mm-hmm. So Otto Skorzeny is known as you know the must master commando of Nazi Germany, the most accomplished commando leader of Hitler. Actually, 50% of it was PR. He knew how to get, you know, coverage at the Mm -hmm. right places. And he was also very imposing. He was like a huge man with a scar. An American diplomat, a man just likened him to a huge San Bernard dog hugging you. So he was very imposing also in his uh, personal look. And you know what I dealt with in the book is his secret relationship with Israeli intelligence, with the Mossad. Mm-hmm. So Otto Skorzeny, uh, this really, really famous Nazi, was drafted, was recruited by the Mossad in 1964 in order to solve the crisis of the German scientists to help the Egyptians build rockets. So Israel also hired Nazis. And the dynamics of the Cold War was that one man's sin was the other man's necessity. So almost all powers blamed others in cynically employing Nazis while they did it themselves, usually telling themselves that in their case, it was an unavoidable necessity. What's the first uh, documentation of Mossad hiring or contacting a Nazi? This is not really Mossad, but Mamad. Mamad is the predecessor of Mossad. Mossad is established in 52, 53. Uh, and uh, before Mossad, we, uh, you have several uh, rudimentary intelligence agencies, Israeli intelligence agencies. One of them is called Mamad. In Hebrew, the Department for Political Research in the Israeli Foreign Ministry. And in '49, a man named Shalhevet Fryer, a very accomplished Israeli scientist, who was later one of the architects of the Israeli nuclear program, Back then, he worked as a recruiter in Mamad, and he was uh, working in Italy. Italy back then was a hub of refugees from all places, many of them escaping Nazis, and a very important Israeli hub. Actually, many illegal Jewish immigrants came to Israel through Italy during the use of the British mandate, and Israeli intelligence was very strong in Italy. At the same time, Syria employed Nazi advisors. One of his men was named Walter Rauf, a really despicable Holocaust perpetrator. He was responsible for the mobile extermination facilities known as the gas vans. Mm. And he was the man in charge of exterminating the Jews of the Yishuv, of the land of Israel, if and when the Nazis will occupy uh, Palestine. And after the war, he was serving the Syrians, but he was kicked out relatively quickly. As one Syrian strongman replaced another, usually the new rulers didn't like the European advisors of her predecessors. And in 49, he's kicked out of Syria, he's, he's mad, he's really angry on Syria, and he's going to South America, like many Nazis. And on the way to South America, he's uh, passing in Italy. And in Italy, is recruited by Shalhevet Friar for Mamad to give the Israelis information on Syria. But does he know that he's recruited by Israelis? He's no, he, he knows it well. Ah. Actually, you know, his German biographer didn't believe it. He wrote, there is no chance that the anti-Semitic Rauf ever agreed to work for Jews. Well, I have news for him. He did. It's documented. 
What is the document? The Mossad own document. So there is an internal research of the Mossad on Nazi hunting. And the author, Yossi Chen, was a Mossad researcher with full access to the Mossad archives and he's quoting documents. So you didn't get access to those documents? No, but I did get access to the internal research of the Mossad, which was declassified. It is very clear that Ralph served the Mossad in 1949 and 50, and even fought for a while to spy for the Mossad in Egypt. I found the document just by chance in the Simon Wiesenthal archives, which just shows that Ralph tried to find details about housing in Cairo. Mm. In like Airbnb in Cairo. Exactly. Oh. Just a lay, well, at the time it was no Airbnb, <laughs> but you know, in 1950, uh, just as the Mossad, he and his Mossad uh, recruiters fall to dispatch him to spy in Egypt. Actually, 30 years later, the Mossad would try to assassinate him. Do we have any idea how he was recruited? I mean, weren't they worried that an anti-Semite would Double serve as yeah, counterintelligence? Or? You, you never believe the intelligence sources. You always juxtapose the information with other sources. But if you'll employ only honest people, so you wouldn't employ anybody, you know. So in the business of intelligence, uh, you, Ellen Dallas, the legendary CIA head, uh, said about another former Nazi that the CIA employed, I don't know if he's a scoundrel. There are a few archbishops in espionage. He's on our side, and that's all that matters. But do we know how he was recruited? Yes. How uh, was Friar Herod- in a pasta restaurant, uh, probably. Well, <laughs> maybe, you know, but uh, we know that Friar heard from one of his sources that there is an um, SD officer with the name of Ralif, who is just came from Syria, you know, the rumor passed around. And this Ralph is actually Walter Rauf. And he just contacted Ralph and asked, do you want some money? Would you give me information on Syria? And he actually invest, interrogated him for seven days. So he like, gave a lot of information on the Syrians. Friar later said he didn't know about Ralph's role in the Holocaust. Ralph told him that he was involved only in forging money, in counterfeiting money. Uh, well, I would say that Shalhevet Friar didn't want to dig too deep, you know. You never know what you'll discover. He was happy with the source. He didn't even report to the Israeli foreign ministry because he was worried that the foreign minister will tell him to stop. Mm. When he reported, the foreign ministry was enthusiastic, actually, so... Nobody had any problem with it. And then he paid this Ralph money and let him go? Ralph was not in his custody. Ralph was a free man. It was yeah, I don't Italy. think the Mossad, though, really It was not cared the Mossad, it was, was Mamad. And well, I mean, yeah, the, but the Mossad didn't. did care. It's a very important rule in intelligence. Everything illegal that you are doing is endangering you. You don't do illegal things without good preparation, without a very good reason, and only when you have to. You know, it's not easy to just kidnap somebody in Italy. You can do it. It's possible. It was done. But it's also very dangerous. And usually you just speak with sources. You don't, you don't kidnap your sources unless you have to. And you said mm-hmm. 30 years later we wanted to assassinate him? Exactly. The Mossad 30 years later, it was in 1980, um, 
interest in Nazi hunting waned in the late 60s, but in 1977, as everybody familiar with Israeli history will know, Menachem Begin uh, comes into, becomes prime minister in Israel. And Begin is very interested in Nazi hunting. And he kind of revives Nazi hunting for a while, for a very short period. And one of the operations declared back then, Operation Nirosta, is the assassination of Walter Rauf. But that was a very feeble assassination. It was tried in Chile. They didn't have permission to kill anybody else except Rauf. And when his wife discovered them and started to yell, they just retreated and never tried again. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. She saved his life. Yeah. That's quite amazing. He died from cancer the same year. So The okay. same year? The same wow. year, yes. Hmm. Okay, so... Back to the book. So how how okay? So you decided you wanted to write about that, and then what happened? And then I started to dig and to dig and to dig deeper and to dig even deeper. And uh, the first thing I had to do is to go beyond the secondary literature because, as I told you, in this field there are many unreliable books. They often quote one another, and the sources are almost all classified mm-hmm. because they belong to intelligence agencies. And I had to find ways to get to the real documents to know the real story. And I began with the CIA. The first man I had to thank profusely was Bill Clinton. When Bill Clinton was president, he ordered the CIA to expose all documents that are related to interaction with Nazis. After 1945, took many years, the CIA didn't expose everything, they blackened out a lot. They redacted a lot, and yet they did expose millions of documents, and all of them are available now online. So it's a very unfriendly system. It's not easy to study these documents, but I did it. And I uh, tried to locate the personal files of his Nazi mercenaries. Why do you call them mercenaries? Because they worked for the highest bidder. Their country, Nazi Germany, didn't exist any longer. And they worked as spies for anybody okay. who paid. So it's not that they were mercenaries during the Nazi... No, 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 no. They yeah. belonged to the Nazi military system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or to the Nazi intelligence okay. community. And after the war, they were working for money. Okay. Virtually for everybody. By the way, even Nazi hunters hired them sometimes. For example, the Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal had informers on hiding Nazis. You wouldn't... Uh, think that these informers were Quakers, right? You know, in order to know something about Nazis, you have to be in neo-Nazi circles. So uh, he employed uh, such people as well. And uh, yeah, everybody employed them. And it's very, very um, common when superpower collapse. Nazi Germany was a superpower. And superpower with a strong army, with a strong intelligence community, and this superpower, after a few years of occupation, became a mediocre, weak, and then kind of medium state, West Germany, that didn't have any need for so many military experts and intelligence experts. If they could find work in West Germany, it was in low salaries, and usually not in their profession. And they tried to look for jobs elsewhere. And now, think about the awakening third world. There are many third world countries like Egypt who want experts. 
but we don't have money for first grade experts. You know, in order to take the best American rocket scientist, you need to pay him way more than Egypt can afford. So then you go to the collapsed superpower. Because Nazis have a formidable reputation, mm -hmm. and yet they are unemployed and are looking for jobs and are ready to work at relatively low salaries that third world countries can afford. It's like when Facebook and Google fired a bunch of people. Right, and all of a sudden you're picking <laughs> away at the uh, at the layoffs. Exactly. Instead of going for someone who's still employed at Google, you go for someone who was fired from Google. And especially if you know Google would have been destroyed or bankrupted, and you mm -hmm. know so many engineers yeah. desperate for jobs with experience and talent would have been thrown to the market. Yeah, yeah. So these people worked for all powers as i said but the power knew how to use them the best was the soviet union hmm. i think one of the things i kind of one of my conclusions was that the kgb was the best in the field it was really the best in the field it knew how to speak to the vanity of his people you know, for example, Heinz Felfe, a former SD man, a SS ISS officer, who became a high up in West German intelligence, but actually spied for the Soviets all the time. He was a Soviet mole. The Soviets, Soviet recruiters, knew how to give him the feeling that he is manipulating world history. That he is not just an employer in West German intelligence, one among many others. That he is kind of manipulating superpowers. Of course, the Soviets manipulated him. But the best thing when you want to manipulate people is to let them believe that they can manipulate you. So the Soviets were actually the ultimate winner, winners. Because they could get many sources and agents and more in this community of Nazi mercenaries. Also, many people don't know this, but I think I read once that after, uh, like in the 40s, after when in Western Germany, uh, about 30% of government employees were ex-Nazis. Well, that's, okay, that's a very important point. I'm very glad you raised it. The answer is, it's complicated. <laughs> How, what is a Nazi? Exactly. Who is a Nazi? You know, in Israel, <laughs> we always ask, who is a Jew? I'm asking, who is a Nazi? It's like one of the main uh, questions in the book. So who is a Nazi? You know, so for some people in Israel, everybody who lived in Nazi Germany was a Nazi. But when the definition is losing meaning, you can well say a German. Uh, then you have the party members. They were Nazis, members of the Nazi party. But it doesn't include military personnel who are not members of the Nazi party. Uh, are these people who still see themselves as Nazis after 1945? This is a small minority. Sizable minority in the beginning, but a very quickly, sh increasingly shrinking a minority of neo-Nazis, of kind of hardcore people. Mm -hmm. Are these people who hold some of the views of Hitler, of Nazi ideology? Now it gets more tricky. Because what I show in the book, and I think it's a provocative statement, I'll say it, there are no Nazis after 1945. Why? Wow. Not even people who define themselves as neo-Nazis. Because the world has changed. And it's impossible to be a Nazi in the sense of World War II. Why? Because 
even take the people who define themselves as Nazis, even the small minority, like, you know, the best test case. They have to choose. They cannot take Hitler's ideology in its entirety because it failed, and they know it failed. And nobody could say that 1945 was not a failure, if you are sane. And usually they chose something out of the rubbish heap left by Hitler. Some chose anti-communism and served the West. Then they had to give up aversion to democracy. And usually anti-Semitism as well, because it was not popular anymore. They could be anti-Semitic personally, but not as a public ideology, let's say so. Others went to socialism. Or if they chose aversion to democracy and anti-Semitism, they could serve the Soviet Union, but then they had to give up for anti-communism. Some of them said, we hate everybody. Just like Hitler hated everybody, we hate the Soviet Union and the United States. We don't want to serve either. But then it means that Germany will be disarmed and you give up on German militarism and on, even on German national pride. Some said, we hate the Jews more than anybody else. Antisemitism is the most important thing for us. These people found themselves serving Arab countries, but what about racism against colored people? It's gone. You are serving the colored people. And these people developed some kind of a post-colonial ideology. Let me give you a story which will leave you agape. The CIA in the 50s uh, kind of installed their own agent in a meeting of a leadership of a neo-Nazi party called the Social Reich Party. Some of the mercenaries came later from this party, so I deal with it in the book. The party was outlawed in West Germany, which was relatively rare. This party was considered especially dangerous. So it was outlawed, and the entire leadership was exiled to Cairo. And they sat in Cairo, and they discussed something that sounds very outlandish today, but was very, very actual back then. What should the neo-Nazis do in a case of a Third World War? It was very clear that the Third World War will erupt mostly on German soil, because Germany was between the Soviet Union's sphere of influence and the American sphere of influence. And the discussion heats up. One of the leaders said the United States is the lesser evil. We should support the United States. The other one says we should support the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is the lesser evil. You cannot imagine such a debate in Hitler's time, right? And then when the debate starts to heat up, the pro-Soviet leader is accusing the pro-American leader, actually yells at him, you're a dupe of the Jews and the Jesuits. Anybody who knows the Third Reich a little bit, the Jesuits were considered evil, let's say, by Nazis, an enemy of the Third Reich. The answer is what, astound what is astounding. The pro-American leader answered, you know what? I confess, yes, I work with the Jews and the Jesuits. Because the last war had proved that international Jewry and the Catholic Church are world powers, and the German people cannot afford itself to alienate them again as Hitler had done. Mm. Uh, again, these are leaders of a neo-Nazi party. And the other one, of course, is more anti-Semitic, but how, he wants to work for the Soviets. How they've matured. <laughs> so I'm saying... They learned so who much. Who said people can change? Yeah, who <laughs> said people can change? Whoa, when conditions change very quickly. Very, very quickly. Wow. You know, even think about the Israelis who are so quick to cooperate. Let's leave alone the low Nazis who were recruited to the Mossad. But with the Germans, German generals who served in the Second World War, 
were building security relationship with the state of Israel? Not today. Not in the 80s. Not in the 70s. In the 50s. Like a few years after the Holocaust. Think about the American pilots during the Berlin crisis of 1948. Risking their lives enthusiastically, by What's the way. What's the Berlin crisis? Of the Berlin crisis is a Soviet siege on West Berlin. Soviets wanted to kind of get rid of West Berlin one and for once yeah. and for all, and the Americans defied the Soviet siege and brought flight uh, supplies to mm. West Berlin. And okay. Stalin gave up in the end. Kind of okay. Stalin got cold feet, and the American pilots enthusiastically risked their lives, and you see it in interviews, for the people of Berlin whom they bombed with firebombs just, you know, three years before. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know? American interests. But you see that it's not only interests. The pilots believed in the mission. They were enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. America, leave alone the pilots even. American children, you know, uh, drew like trees and hearts for the children of Berlin. Like three years after the Second World War. American optimism. Yeah, when conditions change, <sighs> hatreds change very, very quickly. Think about Japanese hatred to the Americans, which just gone immediately after 1945. And, and the same happens even after disasters such as the Holocaust. Does it mean that the hatred goes away? You know, some Israelis still hate Germans for fewer and fewer, certainly in the 50s. But the states began to cooperate relatively soon after the Holocaust. Yeah, I think international relations takes a, a, a twist, but I'm not sure that, that you know, the underlying sentiments of, of the citizens really shift. Well, what I wonder shi- how anecdotal the feelings of the pilots and the children drawing. What shifts is the importance. Usually, by the way, feelings shift also very quickly, especially when you have a new enemy yeah. and your old enemy is helping you against the new. Mm-hmm. Think about you know the the Ukraine war today. Let me give you a current example. The best friends of the Ukrainians are the Poles. Mm-hmm. You know you can see Poles and Ukrainians praising each other if you look at the Twitter, you know the right Twitter feeds, and f- beginning from the statesmen and to the, the common people who are writing on Twitter. You know Poles were the traditional enemy of Ukraine for many years, well into the twentieth century. More in World War II, Polish and Ukrainian underground slaughtered one another and Polish and Ukrainian citizens, respectively. But now the Russians are the common enemy, so Poles and Ukrainians genuinely feel that we're always best friends, if you kind of ask common people. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, things change quickly, and also, even if they don't change, things change in importance. So even if you remain anti-Semite, let's say as a German after the Second World War, and unless you're a fanatic, and usually few people are fanatics, it will not be as important for you as it was during the Third Reich. I think that's what we miss usually in our public discourse. When people hold prejudices, racism, anti-Semitism, whatever, you should also ask not only what they believe, I want to discover their true beliefs, you should ask how important is this negative feeling for them. What would you do to... Yeah, maybe nothing. Maybe other things are more important. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll even do business with them if I can gain money, you know. Maybe, you know, some people who saved Jews in the Holocaust were actually very anti-Semitic. 
but they say, you know, we don't like them, but they're being killed, you know, our moral values are, are more important than this animosity. Mm-hmm. So after the Second World War, everything which was Nazi diminished in importance, except usually something you really like, like anti-communism. Everybody picked and chose kind of his favorite element. And that's why I say, I don't write it in the book, but I say it in interviews very often, that it's very ridiculous to look at European right-wing parties today and say, this is a Nazi, this is a fascist. No, they are not. They may be dangerous, but there is nothing common between any European extreme right-wing party that I know today, even to neo-Nazi parties in the 50s, and certainly to the Third Reich. They are a new kind of danger, maybe. I don't deny that. But people have a tendency to fight the previous wars. Mm-hmm. You know, to speak about previous enemies. And no, this is a new phenomenon. But do you, you don't think there is anything, and then we, I want to get back to the yeah. Mossad and the espionage, but you don't think there's anything that is y- uniquely culturally German in that led to the uh, Third Reich and to the annihilation of six million Jews? Well, in a way that it happened, of course that was something German, because the Germans did it, and in history things lead to one another. Not in the way that it, it happened. I'm saying in the fact that it happened to the Germans, meaning that the Germans... Uh, um, German nation Perpetu- was the one to become a Nazi yeah. and not uh, the Italy nation. Well, in order to it. massacre Jews, you didn't have to be a German. No, uh, of course many, not. Many others did it. And of course, to massacre <laughs> people in general, certainly you don't have to be. But of to course, do it so well. Well, in a way, but you know, there are certain, several pogroms in Eastern Europe, which was not as bad, but they were very bad. I don't think that anything made it, let's say, deterministic. Mm. There was nothing in German history that made the Holocaust necessary or even probable. Actually, I believe that if, Ed, you asked most Nazi leaders in the 30s, would there be kind of a genocide 10 years later? Most of them would find it very improbable. The decision for the Holocaust was taken by the Nazi leadership in the war and the conditions of the first year of the... Of course, we would say Jews have to be cleared out of Germany. That was the basic assumption of the Nazi party. But through genocide, that was thinkable only during the war. Mm. Unless by a very small group of kind of even party extremists. Uh, The thing is that in history, every moment is a crossroads. And you have many, many, many options. And we should never assume that things that happen add to happen that way. So it's a coincidence that the German culture and German people of course it's were not. the heart of two world, world wars. wars and again, the return to the scene of the crime and tried to take over the world with those aspirations. In the First World War, Germany didn't try to take over the world. It tried to achieve superpower. Imagining. Yeah, superpower, you know, goals like everybody else. I do think that Germany was shared a very large part of the war guilt in the First World War, but it certainly didn't try to take over the world. This would, by the way, be exaggerated, even in the Second World War. We did try to take a large chunk. Uh, but uh, I'd say that, you know, I'd quote Littleheart, you know, very, very famous British strategist, who said, you always think your current enemy is the worst ever. 
and was always your enemy. So if you look at British history, it was first Louis XIV, the king of France, was kind of the devil, then Napoleon, then the Kaiser in the First World War, then Hitler. So British people were convinced that the Germans wanted to take over the world and were Britain's enemy, the enemies of British freedom, just like their ancestors believed it was Napoleon or some kind of French king. It's circumstantial. It's changing all the time. You know, look at Germany. Many people said it's a very, very, very popular argument that what happened after the First World War had to lead to the Nazi regime as a kind of a, a German revenge. And in uh, analysis of, let's say, let's take the worst Nazis, the commanders of the concentration camps, there is a study about that. And they said they all have something in common. They're, usually their father died in the First World War, they were driven to political extremism by the, the deprivation and the conditions after the First World War, but then there were many German kids after the Second World War whose fathers had died in the war as well, and they lived in extreme poverty, and yet they were not driven into political extremism. Same Germans, same people, same destruction, completely different outcomes. I am very anti Different history. Yeah. You are very anti? Deterministic. Deterministic, okay. You cannot ever, ever, ever predict history. You can only make educated guesses, but that's all. Hmm. Okay. But I would say that I don't say that there was not, no German traits in the Holocaust because the German did it. So, of course, it was a German project and it had traits of a German project. I don't think that the Nazi Germany was an organized place, by the way. That's another myth. That it mm -hmm. was like an efficient, but it was very inefficient. And yet, if you want to murder people, you can do it if you're a superpower. But let me give you an example to just show you that I don't think that the Holocaust was not didn't have the traits of a German project. Um, there was a pogrom in Poland in Yedwabna in the beginning of the in 1941, which was uh, perpetrated by Poles, but very much in Nazi. Be careful, in, you're. Uh, <laughs> no, you might I'm, have problem getting into Poland after this. Uh, nah, story. the Poles like me. I, ah, okay, but in any case, uh, it was perpetrated by Poles, but in Nazi inspiration. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you see that the murderers forced the Jews to clean the market square before they were killed actually to weed the grass in the market square. And this is a very German style of mass murder. Because no Paul cares if there are weeds in the market square, usually. This is the German obsessiveness about cleanliness, which was connected with mass murder in the Holocaust. So this thoroughness of the murder, yeah, it had German traits. But that's because it was a murderous project done by Germans. A murderous project perpetrated by Rwandans who have Rwandan traits. So let's go back to yeah, although I, Nazi espionage. So interesting. Yeah. So who, who would you say was the biggest asset of the Mossad? And how were they recruited? So that was Otto Skorzeny. Okay. So let's uh, speak about Skorzeny. Uh, first of all, uh, we need some background. In 1962, July 1962, to be precise, Nasser, uh, or Nasser, the dictator of Egypt, the arch enemy of Israel, is uh, launching a parade for Revolution Day in Cairo. Uh, 
and is in many armed states, there are many rockets in this parade, and Nasser boasts that these rockets can hit any point south of Beirut, which means, of course, look at the map, any point in Israel. And the Israelis immediately discover that these rockets are made by German scientists. And the Mossad is panicked because there is a belief that the old Nazis, the Germans, and the new Nazis, the Egyptians, are kind of joining together to perpetrate a second Holocaust. It's They're just worth noting that the concept of missile is uh, invented by Germans. Exactly, and that's why the Egyptians hire a scientists who were involved in the V1 and V2 project, though the best scientists were already in the Soviet Union in the United States, and the Egyptians... Even modern rockets are not that different from... Uh, like, the concept remained uh, the same ever since. But the rockets uh, built for the Egyptians were very primitive, especially they lacked guidance systems. Mm -hmm. It was almost impossible, actually, to build guidance systems in Egypt because the factories were in the desert mm -hmm. and everything was full with sand. <laughs> and the systems had to be extremely clean in order to be precise. And no matter how much they cleaned it, they couldn't create sterile conditions. In any case, the rockets were not really dangerous from Israel. Actually, they were quite useless. <laughs> but the Israelis didn't know it at the time. But that was a surprise for Israel. He didn't see it coming. The like all surprises, it was not a surprise, but it was. Let me explain. <laughs> so the Israelis, the Mossad, knew well about the German scientists building rockets for Egypt from the late 50s. And yet, they assumed, rightly, that the project is useless. And they didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. Then in 62, Nasser is saying, I have rockets that can hit any point in Israel. And the Mossad is able to intercept a letter written by one of the German scientists, actually a, a shopping list, which from the shopping list you could understand that you are planning to build 900 rockets. That was a complete fantasy, just told nonsense to the Egyptians. But of course, the Israelis believed it. And they believed that could destroy Israel. Of course, people started to think about chemical weapons and nuclear weapons immediately. And the Israelis opened, and Israel was the legendary head of the Mossad at the time, launched an assassination campaign against the German scientists in Egypt. And the campaign backfired. Not only that Israel couldn't actually kick these people out of Egypt or frighten them away, the relay, very delicate relation between Israel and West Germany was almost destroyed. And West Germany actually helped the Israeli nuclear program at the time. So it was kind of very, very delicate. And the Americans actually gave Israel a disastrous proposal, which was built on the wave of panics created by these assassination campaigns. The Americans told Israel, okay, listen, guys, we'll speak with the Egyptians. They will give up the rocket program. You say it's an existential threat, right? And you will give up your nuclear program. So Israel was about to give up kind of its main it's card big, for big survival bluff. for a bluff. Wow. Lucky, what year is it? This is in 62 or 63. Okay. Luckily for Israel, the Egyptians declined for reasons wow. of national prestige. Otherwise, it would be kind of very important <laughs> to shoo away the Americans. And so Israel brought Israel into trouble with his reckless special operations. He was the legendary head of uh, yeah. Mossad. And then, by the way, he was sacked by Ben-Gurion. He resigned. In Hebrew, we say it putal, kind of sacked <laughs> and resigned, like in the in same one word. word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
And Mayor Amit, and I'm answering your question, so that's the background. Mayor Amit, the new head of the Mossad, wants to solve the crisis with the Germans. He understands that you had to kind of convince the Germans somehow to bring these people out of Egypt without breaking everything up. And in order to do that, he needs a spy inside the rocket program. The only problem is, there is a very efficient security officer to the rocket program, a former SS sergeant named Herman Valentin. And the Mossad is very frustrated because this Valentin is outpacing them. And they decide they want to recruit Valentin himself. You know, you have a formidable enemy that you cannot win. Recruit him. How to do it? They discover that Valentin's commander during the war was the legendary Nazi commando leader Otto Skorzeny. Otto Skorzeny was kind of an intelligence celebrity and special operations celebrity at the time, lived in Spain, was very much liked the media. And he, uh, wo- the Mossad said, okay, let's recruit Skorzeny so he will help us to recruit Valentin. They recruited Skorzeny through his beautiful wife, mm. who had an open relationship with him, and she was seduced by a Mossad agent. I think we heard of this story. Did we? Yeah, I can't remember if it was from uh, Misha or... Yeah, oh, okay, okay. She was seduced by a Mossad agent. Someone told us that the um, that uh, the Mossad agent that who, sed- who was in charge of seducing, had, there was a quote by him or something about how... Gentlemen don't speak about what they're doing uh, at night or something like <laughs> that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, no, the, the funny quote about him is in the Mossad documents. Actually, they said quite viciously... He was very good with women at a certain age. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we don't know who that guy was. No, we know. His name was Rafi Meidan. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, not to confuse with Rafi Eitan, who is another very famous Mossad yeah. spy. Yeah. He wasn't a big womanizer. Let's no, say. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> was a small man. And, yeah, yeah, but he very involved in this recruitment project as well. Okay. And... Avraham Achitov was a Mossad, later the head of the Shin Bet in the 70s, was able to recruit Skorzeny, to meet Skorzeny and recruit him after a very open conversation on the Holocaust and the Second World War and the Jewish problem. Mm. For Skorzeny, it was actually an adventure to work with Jews. He said, I didn't know the Jews could be armed and dangerous and like actually spy. It's, it's curious, right? And Achitov knew how to play on this kind of feeling of fascination. So Skorzeny helped them to access Valentin in a very funny way. So he told them Valentin, the security officer, was very, he felt discriminated because he was not an officer. He never got an officer's rank during the war. And uh, the Mossad agents actually said they are British. They brought an Australian Jew with a British aristocratic demeanor who kind of said he's an MI6 agent, but, but Valentin didn't really respond. So then they made the last trick, and that was Skorzeny's idea. He told Valentin, okay, you know, you know that I wanted to promote you to an officer at the last days of the war? But, what? 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 I'm an officer? Why? 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 Wait, what? And, Val- and Skorzeny said, yeah, yeah, I forgot about it. I sent a letter. It was lost in the chaos of the last days of the war. But British intelligence intercepted the letter. And now they reminded me about it. 
So you'd better be nice with him. And then Valentin said, I'm ready to do everything for you. After a few to years. To get the letter? No, no, he got the letter out Just of gratitude. To... Uh-huh. He wanted to be an... O- That's how you recruit spies. You like find the weak point. Mm. And he wanted to be an officer so much that when he got it, you know, he was ready to do everything. And he gave the Israelis the access they need, the inside information they need in order to finally solve the crisis. So Skorzeny in this case was an access agent. So his goal was to give access to somebody else. But that's so curious because the war is over. Nazi Germany is no longer. And this man is so driven by his desire to be a Nazi officer. Yeah, he's willing to that he's willing to pr- does he know that he's working for the Jews? No, in the beginning he thinks he works for the British, he discovers he works for Israel only after a few years and then he doesn't care anymore. <laughs> That's so much money. So which is also curious. So like what drives him is this 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 motivation to be a Nazi officer. Of course. But then he finds out that he's working for the Jews. He doesn't care. So how, how, does, how is that explained? We don't know. We have no idea. Yeah, huh? because, you know, psychology is very complicated. Yeah. And anti-Semitism was a very important, super important component of Nazi ideology, but it was not the most important component. No, but even component. forget the anti-Semitism. Like, there is no longer a Nazi Germany. So what, is it, what do you care if you're going to be an officer of or course, not an officer? Just... You know, in in Hebrew, you always say "blilash vot." We like never compare Nazi Germany to anything else, and I don't. But I just want to see a pattern here of war veterans of all kinds. I was in many kind of military history meetings in Israel when you have many IDF war veterans, and you should see how mm. the veterans of the Six Days War debate who entered the old city in Jerusalem first, which unit, and they yell on one another. And who cares? Like, who cares who entered fair? They care a lot. You know, war veterans care a lot about these things. Honor. and Yeah. Not honor, but it's part of our identity. Yeah. And uh, also here, as yeah, elsewhere. That's interesting. So the connection with Otto uh, remained after that? Or? Yes. Otto Skorzeny remained in touch with Israel until his death in 1975. What did he die of? Cancer. And he gave Israel information which was pretty useless. They just, you know, kept in touch with him because you can never know. Mm-hmm. And uh, Achituv, probably Achituv or another recruiter, we don't know who kind of handler who met him, said, and think he's meeting with a famous Nazi, said, we spoke about South Africa, the Israeli handler says, and I was shocked by his racist views. <laughs> like, with whom you're speaking? <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty <laughs> hilarious <laughs> uh, wow. yeah i guess uh in the uh in the midst of all the work you you lose sight and what who is the last asset not the asset mossad ever worked probably scorzeni and valentin mm-hmm. uh, valentin also worked for israel until he's, he died he just became a private detective and did all sorts of investigations on plo people and other targets of the Mossad in Germany uh, because he was shunned by his Nazi friends when they suspected he works for Jews for Israel uh, and he still did it uh, they, the Mossad used to buy him a new car every few years and also uh, 
often he, he was not the only one that did it but the Mossad people always write it he invited his Mossad handlers to very expensive restaurant and then wrote it as part of his expense bills <laughs> and uh, the Mossad by the way was Israel was a poor country right so the Mossad cared a lot about public money much more than other agencies that I know in a very funny case, Isser Arel, which whom I mentioned, like the legendary head of the Mossad, he always passed personally on receipts and expense bills of his agents. And he saw that one of his agents took an Arab source to a, a brothel. And then Isser Arel said the following, and this is the most funny quote I remember. He said, you did good that you took your source to the brothel but I don't see why the Israeli taxpayer should pay you for the same kind of entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, what's called an unnecessary expense. <laughs> Very nice. Wow. wow. That's, that's incredible. It's, it, on one hand, it's, it's like infuriating, right? To think about the fact that these despicable, despicable war criminals who are responsible for just atrocious acts that we can't even imagine lived out their lives happily yeah. and, you know, were, were bought cars by, our, by, you know, this country's taxpayers' money. And, and we worked and collaborated with them. On the other hand, Interests. it's amazing that, that yeah, we had bigger fish to fry. Like yeah, and then lives. we had people, and then we had people that were so cold, not hearted, but cold, uh, cold ruach, you know, that they, that cold they, blooded. But yeah, they I think didn't cold blooded. I think if I was ever in that situation, I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd be able to contain myself, my anger and my, you know, that that. But then intelligence is not the job for you. Anyway. Yeah, of course. You know, Avi Dichter was the head of the Shin Bet, now an MK. One said that. Everybody works in intelligence, no matter what position, needs to know to count to 10, to kind of brief yeah. deeply and count to 10 yeah. before he's doing anything. Incredible. Yeah. It's incredible to be able to be that, like, you know? Yeah. I think that's part of it, though, right? That's probably why the guy was so surprised that, his, that the Nazi had racist views. It's because you have to... You know, you have to be so focused at the, on the objective that you don't you forget who you're dealing with. So, in order to make you a little bit happier and more optimistic, let me say, tell you about the story of the end of another Nazi. We didn't speak much about Alois Brunner, though in the book he's one of the main characters. The Syrian guy. The Syrian, the guy in Syria. Maybe the most bloodthirsty Holocaust perpetrator of it, along with Ralph, maybe. But even more than Eichmann, if such a thing is ever possible. And he was a troubleshooter for extermination during the war. Actually, that was his job. Whenever things didn't go well, he came in when he came debugging. in. Debugging. Yeah, debugging. And he lived in Syria. Yeah. So the Mossad tried to kill him twice. First, they kind of removed one of his eyes with a parcel bomb, 61. Second time, 1980, they removed two of his fingers with a second letter bomb. But then he survived all assassination attempts and the Syrians were never ready to give him up and they punished him in the end. That's the irony of the story. He pissed off Assad. He gave interviews that he shouldn't have gave because the Syrians denied that he's in Syria and that he's giving interviews from Damascus. In the end, in, it happens in 1996, Assad orders to throw him into the dungeon in the station of Muhajirin in the middle of Damascus 
and he like dies in a dark prison cell. And I'm saying, let's say that he would have been tried for his war crimes. There was no death penalty you know, after the first few years after the war. No Western country could have given him such a punishment as the Syrians gave him. Except from, for us. Yeah, except for us. Vote from the wrong for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Fascinating. No, we wouldn't give him such a dark punishment. No, we would hang him. You would yeah. hang him. Uh, yeah. Throw I think I mean he was thrown in a dungeon to be forgotten. It yeah. sounds like. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a pretty horrible death. Mm-hmm. Um wow. Okay, incredible. So many yeah fascinating did you like will there be a netflix show or something like I that hope from so. the book i hope so let's say uh, if somebody's interested let him speak with me I'm, okay yeah, I mean. rafi maidan uh, story <laughs> worth a scene or two <laughs> or three yeah <laughs> seducing yeah. an open marriage uh, wife yeah. of a nazi yeah there's got to be some kinky stuff there yeah um <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing it so all much, so much fun. very very interesting yeah. guys check out fugitives the the subtitle is fugitives a history of nazi mercenaries during the cold war fugitives a history of nazi mercenaries during the cold war by professor, professor danny olbach on amazon you can get the kindle version and soon sounds like a fascinating other book. languages yes was already translated to french and is going to appear in spanish portuguese hungarian and japanese and of course in hebrew it appeared in hebrew amazing thank you so much you're working on your next book already Uh, on what on your next book of course okay actually for an entire year already wrote a few chapters can you give us a teaser yes it's called punishment behind japanese military brutality and i promise a whole new explanation fascinating but you've already done something yeah. about the Japanese. Yeah, of course. Got back okay. to Japan. I speak Japanese. I lived in Japan. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate it. And good luck with the next endeavors. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.